Bible study tonight. And uh, uh, last Wednesday night, uh, we went through kind of the history of the nation of Israel as God's people, uh, things that history uh, documents that are virtually uh, undeniable, that God truly has his hand on those folks and uh, his will is coming to pass uh, every day uh, that we live. We have literally watched prophecy uh, being fulfilled before our very eyes. Tonight I'd like to be a little more specific with the nation of Israel. Again, I stressed last Wednesday night that if you really want to know the time clock of prophecy, keep your eyes on the Jewish people. And uh, that's my very fervent opinion. I know there's a lot of other signs that we can look for, but keep your eyes on the Jewish people. And uh, they're, they're an awesome prophetical clock uh, to watch to know when Jesus will be returning again. I want to use the exact same scripture setting I used last Wednesday night for uh, tonight's Bible study. And uh, uh, tonight I'll be a little more specific. I'm going to have about an eight-minute video uh, to play for you in just a few moments. Uh, I would like to go ahead and announce that uh, this coming Wednesday night, a week from tonight, Lord willing, we'll be talking to you about the red heifer, a subject that most people either don't know much about or they misunderstand. And uh, so I would like to teach on the red heifer. And then once we get beyond that point, uh, we'll go into prophecy that may be a little more uh, common to most of you. I'd like to read tonight from Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse 29. Jesus said to them in a parable, Behold a fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is nigh, is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when you see these things come to pass, you know that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. I love verse 33, and we use that as a faith builder quite along the way. But God is bottom line telling us we can have faith in what he says about the future. I want to speak to you tonight for a little while about the preparation for the Messiah. The preparation for the Messiah. The first temple of Yahweh, the spelling of that word in the Old Testament is capital Y, capital H, capital W, and capital H. We pronounce it Yahweh. The Jews were forbidden to say it. They, were, they could not utter it with their lips. They felt like the name of God to them was too great for man to utter. So if it was ever communicated, it was usually written uh, on a piece of paper, scroll, etc. But the first temple of Yahweh was built by King Solomon around 957 B.C. 957 B.C. B.C., before Christ was born, it would be some 950 plus years before Jesus was born. It, of course, was destroyed by Babylon in 587 B.C. So you can see that they did not have Solomon's temple that long, uh, just a short 30 years. Construction of the second temple was begun in 537 B.C., 
and was completed in 516 B.C. I explained to you last Wednesday night that according to the Jewish calendar, it starts around the year 5,000 plus with Adam and Eve and it goes backwards. It counts from a big number to a small number till you get to the birth of Christ. And then now after the birth of Christ, uh, which the cal- most calendars start around 4 A.D., which is after the birth of Christ, and uh, we use our calendar today says 2013. The Jewish calendar, I believe, is around uh, 5,200, um, something along that line. Um, uh, I studied that the other night. It was not important, but it was Bible study. Just thought I'd mention it. But construction of the second temple, which is known as Zerubbabel's Temple, began in 537 B.C., was completed in 516 B.C. The second temple was renovated in the New Testament era by Herod and was known as Herod's temple. In the Old Testament, originally it was built by Zerubbabel and others, but it became Herod's temple in the New Testament. And this is the temple that Jesus visited, that the disciples showed him all the buildings of the temple. And and then Jesus began to give them the discourse of Matthew 24 and Luke chapter 21. It was destroyed, Herod's temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. I want you to pay attention very closely. The Jews have not had a temple since then. They have not had a collective place to worship since 70 A.D. Currently, essentially, they use the Wailing Wall. I'll just say that very generically, but that's their their biggest meeting spot. There's little caves and tunnels off that wailing wall that they'll meet and study and discuss and what have you. But when they have big uh, times of worship and, and what have you, usually it's conducted in and around the wailing wall. So they've not had a temple since 70 A.D. Both Jewish and Christian prophecies foretells of the building of a third temple. As much as God has promised them, to bring them back as a nation, to bring them back as a people, he has also promised that they will have a temple. So let me ask you the big question tonight. If God has made it possible for them to come together as a nation, miraculously, as we talked about last Wednesday night, if he's caused them to come back together as a people, miraculously, what makes you think he won't make a temple happen? One of the most keynote things in prophecy is when the Messiah comes through the eastern gate and marches into a temple and declares himself to the Jewish people and to the world that he is the Messiah. A temple will have to be built for the Antichrist to deceive the the Jewish people for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. If that's going to happen there has to be a temple built. Now, for those of you that believe we're close to the rapture, I want to show you tonight really how close we are because they are closer to building that temple than they've ever been. I will show you next Wednesday night that they're closer to their their sacrifice of cleansing with the red heifer than they've ever been. I'll show you that next Wednesday night. I have discovered through a lot of research, and I mentioned this briefly last Wednesday night, but most of their temple is built 
already. You say, well, you know, last I heard, the, the Dome of the Rock is, you know, is still there. The, the, the Muslim mosque is still there on the, temple, on the Temple Mount, that 35 acres that David purchased in the Old Testament. You know, it's got the, the, the Dome of the Rock on it. You remember how Solomon's temple was built? It was kind of prefab, to use our modern-day terminology. A lot of it was put together off-site, then delivered to the site and just simply erected. That's what they're doing now. Most of their temple has already been built, and it's just simply in storage waiting for the right time to erect it, to build it, and what have you. There is also, and I'll show you this a little bit later in our Bible study tonight, but there's a new generation of Levite priests that are being trained for service in the third temple, and this to me is one of the greatest miracles that God is performing in prophecy. They have been blessed, or they have already blessed, the cornerstones that will be used for the new temple. They're already uh, constructed. I'll show you that uh, by way of video in just a moment. So all at a time when it seems least likely that a temple will be built or that a temple could even be built, they have it ready. As in ancient biblical times, the Jews have begun preparing for the temple. They've built it. They're almost ready to lay its foundation again. And the whole world says it won't happen. It can happen. But I tell you, it will happen. It will. God said it would happen, and it's going to happen. If the third temple is not built, then the God of Israel does not exist, for if so, he is a liar. So let me begin tonight by just giving you a little overview. Jesus the Messiah will return in the near future. He will. Faithful believing servants in Israel are preparing for the Messiah's return. God is providing the knowledge and supernatural events to ensure that the preparations will be complete. They will be ready as much as possible for their Messiah when His foot touches the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. Jesus told us of the end of the dispensation of grace in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Luke 13, and, or, or Mark 13 and Luke 21. Through the parable of the fig tree and other statements, he assured us that he would return when you see these things come to pass. Most persons who study prophecy and do not confuse themselves with such unsupportable theories, such as preterism, a doctrine in my opinion that was born out of hell, they believe the whole book of Revelation already happened in 70 A.D., uh, but if you don't believe such things like that, you do know that the countdown for the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ, which is two different things, began with the return of the covenant people, the Jews, to their covenant land, Israel, and the prophetical clock started ticking in May of 1948. I believe we are this generation that Jesus spoke of, which we will see our Lord appearing in the clouds to call His followers home in the rapture. We believe His second coming will be at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. That's seven times 360 days, according to the Word of God, or 2,520 days, 
after the resurrection and rapture of the church. Jesus will be accompanied by a host of heavenly beings, that being made up of angels and saints, and he will return to the Mount of Olives. And uh, we have a uh, picture of that. This is where he will return to. Uh, I have seen this from a distance. Uh, when we went to uh, Israel in 99, we could not go up to the Mount of Olives. Uh, the trip didn't call for it, but we saw it from a distance. But when Jesus comes in his second return, seven years after rapture, he will return to the Mount of Olives with ten thousands of his saints. And the Bible said that's where uh, the Battle of Armageddon will be fought in, in general proximity and Jesus will destroy them by the brightness of his coming. But he will set foot on the top of this mount that you see. He will then descend the Mount of Olives through the Garden of Gethsemane. He will cross the Brook Cedron and then are in through the Eastern Gate. Uh, those of you that are looking at the slide, if you'll look all the way to your right-hand side at the end of that wall, you'll see the Eastern Gates there. He will go through... Uh, those eastern gates is now obstructed by stone blocks laid by the Muslims. Even a cemetery is there. I showed you a picture of that last Wednesday night. They think that will prevent the Messiah from entering into Jerusalem. He will then go from through the eastern gates. Uh, he will walk to the newly built third temple, and he will sit on the throne, which will be considered David's throne, uh, which is prophetical of the Old Testament. He will then rule the earth for 1,000 years during the millennial kingdom. Those who understand the season in which we live are preparing for the Messiah's return. In this presentation, I wish to tell of some of the preparations underway in Israel as we speak to prepare for and welcome the Messiah back to earth. The preparations of the faithful in Israel are being assisted by supernatural events from God I will share some of those with you in a few moments. And when their Messiah returns, all will be ready to welcome His homecoming back to the nation of Israel. Faithful Jews in Israel are preparing for the Messiah's return. So I want to present just a few of the preparations being made to make the Messiah feel welcome, if you will, upon His return to rule as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Know that this is only a sample of preparations. There's many other things, but uh, I'll give you just a small sampling of these things tonight. The third temple must be built on the Temple Mount. It will be constructed just a few yards north of the Muslim's Dome of the Rock that you see in this picture here. There's been a lot of debate recently, just in the past several years. Is it possible for the Jews to build their temple where it needs to go uh, uh, and still leave the Dome of the Rock uh, where it is. Uh, there's a lot of debate about that. I personally believe they can. Uh, uh, I do know that the Jewish people are very careful about even going on to this site, period, this 35-acre site called the Temple Mount, uh, in Jerusalem, they're very careful about going on that site because they're not totally 100% sure where the Holy of Holies was when Solomon's temple and Herod's temple existed. So they're afraid 
to go on that site that they'll walk through the Holy of Holies, the ground designated for the Holy of Holies. They're afraid to do that. They have determined uh, in the past few years uh, where they believe the Holy of Holies is, so they, they're a little more generous about the Jewish people going on to the Temple Mount site, but the Jews are very, very respectful of it. One thing that really uh, the, the Jews just take serious, serious offense as the Muslims treat this site as kind of a picnic area park. Uh, if you go on the Internet, if you're interested, one of the big things you can see that they do is they play soccer games and, and uh, all kind of different sports and what have you uh, on this site, which is what it's not intended for. And uh, it's very re- disrespectful to the Jewish people. Uh, so the temple that the Jews want to build, listen very carefully, must be completely constructed and put into use by at least the first half of the tribulation period. It will be desecrated by the Antichrist at this time. The book of Daniel calls it the abomination of desolation, and it must be cleansed and recommissioned for worship by the end of the tribulation, and it will at that time receive King Jesus as the Messiah. So if all of this has to happen, the the, and the Jews being deceived by the Antichrist that he is the Messiah, he will then commit the abomination of desolation halfway through the tribulation period, and then the, the temple will be cleansed and purified and what have you uh, for the Messiah, the true Messiah to come. If all of that has to happen after the rapture of the church, and they're making preparation for all that to happen now, where do you think we're living? To me, it's kind of a a no-brainer. I believe the rapture of the church is imminent. That's my personal opinion. So active preparations are being made right now by the Temple Institute and other organizations in Jerusalem. There are several different Jewish organizations that are making preparations for the temple. The most prominent that you'll hear about is the Temple Institute. Um, uh, You'll see some of that on this... uh, video, and then I'll show you some pictures uh, that has been provided by the Temple Institute. But watch this video and you'll see where the Jews are with the building of their third temple. So you can see that the Jews are making preparations. They have the uh, cornerstones uh, that have been cut out, uh, six tons apiece. I want to recall uh, your memory when uh, the the man was in the tunnel under the temple. They were looking at a big, huge rock that had little rectangles in it, and they believe a lot of the treasures of the temple are behind that rock. I've seen that rock. I have pictures of it at home. Uh, Heim Richmond that you saw interviewed a little while ago believes that actually the Ark of Covenant is behind that rock, the Ark of Covenant that was of Solomon's temple, uh, and that a lot of the original temple treasure or behind that rock. When Josiah uh, realized that the Romans had encamped around and they were going to destroy Israel, uh, a lot of that stuff was taken down, stored, and then bricked up as a hiding place. And uh, they believe that a lot of those artifacts are still there. I also want to mention another part of that video where the, the Muslim Yasser Arafat said when he was living in 2002 that there's no evidence that the temple ever existed there. 
course, that's not a true statement. They found artifacts and what have you, and then underground, uh, the tunnels and what have you is proof that the temple existed. But uh, what a lot of people don't know is that when, uh, uh, when the Dome of the Rock was built uh, around 600 A.D., that they used a lot of the temple material that was there that was destroyed by Titus. They used a lot of that material to build the Dome of the Rock. So a lot of the uh, material, not to be repetitive, but a lot of the material that existed after the leveling of the temple in 70 AD of Herod's temple was used by the Muslim people to rebuild what you see as the Dome of the Rock around 600 AD been there a long time. So I want to show you tonight, take a few moments and show you uh, what the Jews are doing to prepare for their Messiah. I want to show you a picture of the Ark of Covenant. This is, um, this is the only object that was placed in the Holy of Holies. The one you see here is a replica uh, of what they believe the original Ark of Covenant was. In the Old Testament, you can see the two cherubims on top, the mercy seat, and so on. This is a replica that they used to rehearse with. But the Ark of the Covenant is the only object that was placed within the Holy of Holies. Once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest enters the Holy of Holies asking God to forgive the transgressions of the entire house of Israel. Made of wood, covered with gold, and contained within it, as you know, uh, the two tablets of the Law of Moses, it was brought down from Sinai. It also had a pot of manna, and it had Aaron's rod that budded, Aaron's staff that budded. So fearing its capture by the invading Babylonians, King Josiah had it removed from the Holy of Holies. It was hidden in a chamber deep beneath the Temple Mount, and uh, a tradition of its exact location is maintained to this day. Uh, the picture de depicts here a mock-up made of the Temple Institute or by the uh, Temple Institute for purposes of research and instruction. When I was at Jer in Jer uh, Jerusalem and looking at that large cornerstone that they believe is the one that David had uh, hewn out of uh, a rock mountain just somewhat north of Jerusalem, it's still a mystery as how they got that rock in its place. But to be the cornerstone, uh, that thing is huge. You, you just have to, you would have to see it. Uh, if my memory serves me correctly, I believe they estimate it weighs well over 20 tons. And how they move that one piece of rock is just amazing to place it exactly where it is. But uh, when we were there in 1999, we were told by our tour guide that they have used different uh, scientists, archaeologists and what have you, have used some very sophisticated x-ray equipment that has looked through that rock, has x-rayed through that rock, and they can see that there's images of things behind that rock that they believe is uh, a lot of the furnishings from Solomon's temple. Uh, Brother Jeff Moses, and a, a, a prophecy evangelist we had come to Baker a number of years, uh, actually has a picture of the menorah uh, that they will use. I'll show you that in a moment. But uh, the seven golden candlestick that they believe is from the temple of Solomon. Uh, made out of one piece of gold, uh, weighs several hundred pounds, worth an absolute fortune, and the Jews will tell no one where they keep that stored. 
So if we can go on to the next photograph, the Jews have prepared one. Uh, I'll show you uh, in this picture one of the four golden garments, as they call it, of the high priest is the crown, fashioned from one single piece of pure gold. The crown is worn across the forehead, extending from ear to ear, as pictured, as you can see in the picture. Uh, it is held in place by a string dyed by the same blue color as used in all of the high priest garments. I'll go to that blue color in a little while. The crown bears the inscription, Holy to God, and it is worn by the high priest at all time while he is officiating in the temple. They have this crown ready to crown their Messiah. That is ready to be used as we speak. They also have the garment of the high priest. Uh, the Temple Institute several years ago announced, we're pleased to announce that the weaving of the sacred ephod garment for the uniform of the high priest has been completed. The Temple Institute also has completed the complicated task of joining the ephod to the remembrance stone, those 12 stones, uh, and affixing the breastplate to it. Uh, this complex project has been based on extensive research by the Temple Institute. But you can see in the picture that they have the garment that they believe the Messiah will wear uh, when he returns to his people. And with God's help, this task has been completed and the results of it have been made public. The next thing I want to show you is the copper labor. This is the, we would call it the brazen labor, but it's a copper labor and stand which stands in the, it stood in the temple courtyard in Moses' tabernacle and also in Solomon's temple between the sanctuary and the outer altar, the brazen altar. Uh, it's the first of the temple's uh, vessels to greet the priest each morning. There the priests wash their hands and feet before proceeding to attend to the daily offering. This is not a, just a photograph or an artist's rendering. This is an actual piece of furniture that they have ready that they can use in their new and third temple. The next photograph I want to show you is the menorah or the seven golden candlesticks. Uh, you saw a picture of one in the video. Uh, actually, you saw a live uh, uh, viewing of it. Uh, the menorah, uh, made from a single piece of gold, stands in the southern side of the sanctuary each morning as a priest prepares and rekindles the wicks. The central wick, known as the western candle, is required to burn perpetually. The oil and wicks of this candle are changed in such fashion to ensure that it will never be extinguished. They have this ready for the Messiah uh, in the new third temple. Uh, all of this is ready. The next photograph I'll show you is the northern side. In the northern side of the sanctuary stands a table of showbread. Uh, just hold that photograph there, Casey. But in the menorah photograph, the one you just saw, uh, it's, it's made of metal, and it's, it's overlaid in gold. Uh, that is not the original menorah. Uh, the one that I referred to a few moments ago that uh, Jeff Moses had a photograph of is uh, one solid piece of gold, weighs over 1,000 pounds, and uh, they believe it is out of Solomon's temple, and they will plan to use that one in their third temple. The one I just showed you on the screen is one that they practiced with, if you will, uh, to rehearse to get ready for the Messiah. Uh, the table of showbread that you see, it was on the northern side of the sanctuary. The table is made of wood overlaid with gold. Upon it were placed 12 loaves of showbread. On each Sabbath day, the loaves were simultaneously removed and replaced by fresh loaves. 
so as to ensure that the loaves remain perpetually on the table. Uh, the Jews state that miraculously the week old loaves being replaced also retain their heat and fresh, uh, freshness and that these loaves are distributed among the priests to consume uh, after they have served their purpose in the temple. But they have this table of showbread ready. Israel will have the third temple built and furnished and trained, uh, have trained priests available at the time of the Messiah's return. What you see here is probably one of the most important pieces of furniture to the Jewish people, and it's the altar of incense. It's the last place that the, the priests minister at before they go on into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, and this represents their prayer, praise, and worship. They also have uh, the altar of incense ready for the Messiah for when he returns as well. And um, <clears throat> I want to share something with you tonight that I think is just absolutely amazing and miraculous. I want to talk to you a moment about anointing oil, and you may not understand where this is applicable until I get to the end of this presentation, so bear with me for a moment. But Jesus' title, the title of the Messiah, is the Anointed One, actually the Anointed One of God. In the Old Testament Hebrew, this title is Ha-Mashiach, uh, from which is derived the Messiah. In the New Testament, uh, Greek, this title is Ho-Christos, from which is derived the Christ. Anointing oil has been practiced for several thousand years now. Uh, priests were anointed in Exodus 28. Kings were anointed, examples in Leviticus and also in 1 Samuel. Prophets were anointed in 1 Kings 19. In his first coming, Jesus came representing three offices. Listen very carefully. Number one was prince. Number two was priest. And number three was prophet. In his second coming, Jesus' offices will be changed. He will no longer be the Prince of Peace, but the King of Kings. He will be our eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek, according to Psalm 110 and Hebrews 7. He will no longer be our prophet because he is the embodiment of all prophecy, and he fulfills all prophecy by his second coming. Thus, Jesus must be anointed, according to the Jewish people, and faithful followers must have this anointing oil. The Lord gave Moses the formula for anointing oil in Exodus chapter 30. The formula or the recipe given to Moses for the highly fragrant anointing oil consists of five ingredients. Liquid myrrh, sweet-smelling cinnamon, sweet-smelling cane, cassia, and olive oil. At the time of Jesus, anointing oil included highly fragrant Persimmon sap. When Jesus was on earth 2,000 years ago, the anointing oil included the highly fragrant persimmon sap. This tree is now extinct. To the Jewish people, they believe that Jesus will have to be anointed, their Messiah will have to be anointed with that oil when he returns. But they can't make it because the highly fragrant persimmon sap is not available because the tree is now extinct. In the late 1980s, archaeologists uncovered a jug of anointing oil from a Dead Sea cave. This oil is from the time of Jesus, and tests have confirmed the authenticity of its formula of the anointing oil. So to the Jews now, they have 
the anointing oil necessary to anoint King Jesus as their Messiah. Huge, miraculous things to me. None of this is just coincidence, and I don't think we ought to slough it off as no big deal. The second thing I want to mention to you is the ashes of the red heifer. And those of you that listen to the news regularly, uh, you hear about this from time to time, uh, even on the news. But uh, for city dwellers like me, a heifer is nothing more than a virgin cow. The Torah, or Numbers chapter 19, demands a special heifer to purify the temple and the priesthood. The heifer must be blemish-free. Uh, I believe I, uh, I'll show you next week a, a picture of a red heifer. I don't have it tonight. I'll show it to you next week. But it's a, a red-colored cow. He's kind of rust-colored. If this cow has either a white or a black hair anywhere on it, it uh, among its red hairs, it's disqualified to use as a sacrifice uh, for a purification ceremony. She also must have never been yoked to plow with, etc. The heifer must be slain outside the camp, and all of her parts must be burned with cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet. The heifer's ashes must may be sprinkled or mixed with water for purification purposes. And the Jews believe that you have to have the ashes of the last red heifer that was sacrificed to mix with the ashes of the current day red heifer to make purification complete. That is not, that's not mentioned in the law of Moses in their Torah. Um, there is a copper scroll that I will show you next week that has been excavated. Uh, they found it in the Dead Sea Scrolls where they found those uh, in that general area. And somewhere in there it's mentioned and the Jews are clinging to that. Well, there's this big search now for the ashes of the last red heifer that was sacrificed. I'll go into all of this next week. I'm not going to take the time tonight to read Ezekiel 36, but it, it kind of goes through the process of what they have to do. But bottom line, the purpose of the red heifer is for the cleansing of the nation. When they sacrifice an appropriate red heifer, three years younger, never plowed with, a virgin cow, perfect, no, no blemishes, nothing along that line. If they can sacrifice one of those, it will cleanse their nation. And they believe this has to be done to have their Messiah come back. What they don't understand is up through the Old Testament, there was nine red heifers sacrificed. Jesus was a type of the tenth and final red heifer. They don't have to sacrifice another one. They think they do, and they will. And then they will learn later that Jesus was, uh, he is the one that purifies them ultimately. But anyway, Israeli cattle, cattle farmers are diligently breeding and searching for a perfect red heifer. Uh, a few years ago, the priests felt like they had such a red heifer but she grew a few white hairs before her third birthday, and she was disqualified. So some scholars argue that the new modern red heifer's ashes must be mixed with the old ancient ashes from a previous sacrifice. Again, this requirement is not included in the Torah or the Old Testament. However, some scholars are searching this copper scroll. Uh, I'll show you a picture of it next week for clues to try to locate ashes saved from the ancient times. Israel will undoubtedly have the ashes of the red heifer in time to purify the third temple. I've heard different sources say they have found them, and uh, they're ready for that, but I have not been able to find it. 
in my research to satisfy my own uh, demands for this material. The last thing I want to show you tonight is a picture of a snail. <clears throat> you say, my word, where did this come from all of a sudden? This is a Mediterranean sea snail uh, or a mollusk. There's a word that is used 48 times in the Old Testament. It's tekelet, and it, it's their word, the Hebrew word for a blue dye. Again, it is mentioned 48 times in the Old Testament. Blue is the color for the Messiah. In the Old Testament, when you read the color blue, usually it represents the Messiah in one way or another. Uses of this dye included dyeing the middle garment of the Jewish high priest. Uh, you saw in the picture a little while ago. And importantly, the blue thread in the seasit. The seasit is the fringe corner of the talent or the Jewish prayer shawl. Uh, I have one that somebody brought me from Israel because the one that I bought in Israel, I lost it somewhere and I don't know where it's at. But they wear this like this. You've seen pictures of them at the Wayland Wall. And they wear the prayer shawl. Uh, it, it represents the hem of his garment. There's more representation in this tonight than we have time to go into. But the blue color you see in it to the Jewish people is, is critical and they have to have this particular color. This is a blue dye. Y'all can believe this or not. It doesn't make me any difference, but I know what God is able to do. They have to have this color blue. Um, the seasit, the fringe, the tassel that you see here on this one, which I'm not sure this is as appropriate as it should be or, or properly represent their prayer shawl, but anyway, it, it, it gets the point across. But it, this, this fringe tassel was required to be placed on each of the four corners of the shawl, and a blue thread was commanded to be incorporated into each tassel, and it is not on this one. <clears throat> this is according to Numbers chapter 15, 38, and 39. After the destruction of the second temple and the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., this blue dye, tekelet, could not be produced. Jews wore tassels of white or white with a black thread throughout their whole time of exile. There are 2,000 years of exile after 70 A.D. until now. It is believed that this blue dye came from this Mediterranean snail or mollusk. Although opinions differ, most scholars believe this mollusk is Murex trunculus, more recently renamed Hexaplex trunculus. This snail was thought to be extinct. And what makes it so miraculous is these things come out of the Mediterranean Sea. And back in the Old Testament time, you go back to the time of Moses when all of this was introduced, no one knows how they were harvested. And when they were harvested, you could only harvest them once every 70 years. So for them to have this blue dye, it was pretty amazing. And it has been believed for since essentially 70 A.D. that this snail was extinct. It did not even exist anymore until, for whatever reason, there was a few of them washed ashore in Israel a number of years ago. 
The blue dye can now be extracted from the shell of this snail. Interesting, and I saw a YouTube instruction on this, uh, illustration on this, and it was amazing. When you break open this snail to, to extract this color out of its shell, it's not blue unless you put it in sunlight. And when you put it in sunlight, the sunlight turns it blue. Could this be an awesome fulfillment and symbolic of the Jesus, I am the light of the world declaration? That you really don't see God unless you can see him in the sun. So Israel now has the precious blue dye necessary to welcome their Messiah with his color. The middle garment of the high priest garment of the blue thread uh, of the seasit can now be authentically dyed as they require. Uh, I'm trying to wrap this up as quickly as I can. There's two real quick things I want to share with you. Uh, I'm, I'm watching the clock. I want to talk to you about the priest. I mentioned a moment ago that they are training Levite priests right now for the Messiah. We're, we don't think all this through, but they do. God anointed Aaron, the brother of Moses, and his sons as priests and decreed that only the descendants of Herod may serve in the priesthood, according to Numbers chapter 3, verse 10. These priests, Kohanim, are directly descended from Aaron. They refer to them as the Kohanim. After a thousand years of intermarriage among the Jewish people, the years of Babylonian exile, when they lived in Babylon and intermarried with Gentile people and Jewish people outside of the tribe of Levi, and even from 70 A.D. until 1948, Dear God, the people that the Jews marry, Gentiles, other Jews, whatever. Is it possible to properly identify the bloodline of Aaron and what is now Jewish priests that they're going to be using in the third temple? Yes, they can. DNA testing shows that there are specific genetic markers in the Y or the male chromosome, which is present only in the Kohanim, the descendants of Aaron. God gave this tribe of people, the sons of Aaron, a DNA formula, if you will, that is different from everybody else on this planet. We could say very respectfully that God may be born at night, but he wasn't born last night. He knew, he knew, and he planned it. Aaron's male descendants, and if you do some research on the Internet, you can find how they do this. It is an unbelievable process. And Jewish scientists and medical people have literally traveled around the world, all over the Middle Middle Eastern uh, parts where they believe the tribe of Aaron has moved off to. They've gone as far as Afghanistan doing blood tests on hundreds and thousands of men to find that exact DNA that represents a true descendant all the way from Aaron. 
So Aaron's male descendants can now be confirmed with modern tests. Uh, God has marked his priest for this season. Young men, descendants of Aaron, are actively training today to serve in the Jewish priesthood and to be the third temple priest. So Israel will have a priesthood from Aaron's lineage as decreed by God to serve in the third temple. The last point I want to mention, and then we'll conclude, is Israel, I'll go through this very quickly. Those of you that are familiar with the Bible are familiar with the Sanhedrin court. These are, should be 70, but they had 71 men on the Sanhedrin court that ultimately convicted Christ and pronounced his judgment to be crucified. It was the Sanhedrin court that did that, mostly comprised of Sadducees, the more richer, wealthy, political, connected Jewish element of that day. On October the 13th, 2004, 71 rabbis out of the nation of Israel was brought back into Jerusalem, and they were officially anointed and ordained to be the new modern Sanhedrin court. Um, and across the board, they have received their special ordination to serve as the Sanhedrin court to be just like it was in the Old Testament for when their Messiah returns. So we can sit and speculate on this and that, and we can talk about who the Antichrist is going to be, and we can talk about Russia being the bear and China being the king from the east. We can talk about all that you want. Watch the Jewish people, and they'll tell you when Jesus is about to return. What they're preparing for right now is seven years after our rapture. That's what I want everybody in the house to understand. If they're ready now, how close are we to the rapture? So if you're not right with God, there's no time like the present because none of us are promised tomorrow. Thank you, Lord. Let's stand tonight. <clears throat>